0: We're continuing to think about what the image of God means um, as we're looking at Genesis in the beginning. And so we've looked at several things so far. Um, we have looked at you know, how God is the Creator and we are the creatures, and how we are made in His image, that we have been We fell in that image, we marred that image, but Christ has redeemed us in that image. That murder is a particular strike against not just one another, but against the image of God in us. And so we looked at infanticide and abortion and the wickedness of those sins. And then last week we we talked about this distinction that God has put into this earth, specifically in us as male and female, and how... That's helpful to us, and it's not bad, it's actually quite good that we are different and distinct. And this week we're talking about the fatherhood of God, and uh, in preparing for this week, and knowing the circumstances of our last week, um, I didn't know if this would be where I, I landed, but I don't think there's anything more helpful in times of grief than a good father, Right? That you know, my parents are just in town visiting. They had no idea, you know, they didn't even know we had a meeting this morning. So they just picked this weekend to come down, and uh, and I just looked back while we were just singing, and my dad's got like this pretty, I don't know what kind of pattern that's called, checkered, you know, and my son has a different color but the same pattern, and I have a whole bunch of those sorts of shirts. And I was just thinking how thankful I am for my dad and that he's here. And I'm sitting in it, and it, I see my dad, and then I see my son, and if I was in between them and I shaved my beard, it would be like three states of being. Um, we are, in fact, very similar looking. And I hope that uh, this will be helpful for you, and that it will be helpful for us, not just today, uh, but for a long, long time. So, I'm going to pray very quickly. Well, first, I'm going to read part of John 17. I don't think that's actually in your bulletin, but that's where I'm going to be this morning, John 17. First four or five verses. This is, John 17 is uh, at the end of the night that Jesus was betrayed when he's with his disciples. So, you have in John, the first 12 chapters are the whole three years of his ministry, three and a half years of Christ's ministry. And then chapters 13 through the end are the night he was betrayed through the crucifixion. And so John, like, runs through the first three and a half years and then slams on the brakes. And he spends 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 on the night Jesus was betrayed. Five chapters of John's 21-ish chapters are in one single night, a few hours of time. And this is towards the end of that night. This is the last kind of close to when uh, Jesus is with his disciples right before they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's betrayed by Judas. And this is termed by a whole bunch of people. They call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Um, It's not important that you remember that it's called that by many people. What's important is that you get... It would be beneficial to you to read the whole of John 17 um, so that you would see what God the Son prayed for just before his death. And so this is the beginning of that prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, which he had spoken the words, I have overcome the world. That's how he ended. And then he said, after he'd spoken those words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray this morning. Father, we pray that your spirit would help us, that you would guide us into all truth, that we would know you as our father. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. That last verse. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There are lots of things we know about God, and uh, I don't remember when this was, but a couple weeks ago, it was either in Sunday school or at elder training or just in some conversation. You can tell I'm really good at details. Um, I was having a conversation or talking with some folks about doctrine, specifically the Trinity, and I said, you have to get past just this, this knowledge of three, God, three persons in one God and begin to apply the theology of the Trinity, meaning why does the Trinity matter? Why does it matter that we're not a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, that we're not a Jew who also denies the Trinity? Why does the Trinity matter? Why does it matter that God is Father, Son, and Spirit? And those sorts of questions are really the more important questions. Yes, you have to get the base doctrine right, Right? So, in the early church, there were huge fights over how to understand the Trinity. And the fights were on the finer points of the doctrine. Are there three gods? Is there one God? Are there three persons or three states of being? All those sorts of things. But the reason they were fighting over that wasn't just to be right about some true thing about God, but because it had actual implications. If you got this wrong, you would think wrongly about God, and then you would act wrongly because you have bad thoughts. So one of the things that is eternally true about God is that He is a Father. Now think about other things we know about God. We're going to learn about some of these, we're going to talk about some of these, because they have to do with things, but... When we think of what the image of God is, we have to think of who God is. And God eternally is Father, Son, and Spirit. Three in one. And that oftentimes when we think of who God is, we think of attributes of God God is just, God is love, God is wise, God is spirit. Those are all true, and those are also all eternal. And then sometimes we think of relational aspects of God. So we're going to learn about this next week, but God the Son, how he relates to the bride, his church, and it's a picture of marriage. And so we learn that marriage was never really just about humans. It was actually a portrait of God the Son being wed to the church, his bride. But that hasn't been true eternally, right? Why do I know that it hasn't been true eternally? It may have been an idea in the mind of God eternally. But creation started at some point and will end at some point. And God the Son didn't have a bride to marry until creation. And so that aspect of God that we know the Son as the one who is going to marry the bride is not an eternal thing. It's had a beginning. It has consummation at the end of all things, when we are finally wed to the bridegroom in heaven and at the marriage banquet of God. The fatherhood of God is not like that. He didn't become the father when the world began. He has always been father, son, and spirit forever in the past, in eternity beyond all of our capacity to think. And he will always remain Father, Son, and Spirit, for all eternity into all the future that we can't fathom. And it is an unchanging truth about God that He is a Father. Why does that matter? Well, sometimes when we learn about God in Scripture and through other people, we give analogies. God is like. So one of them that I read several times this week, God is a refuge and strength. He is like a strong fortress. Well, God isn't a strong fortress, right? He's not in heaven in a form of a giant building with a moat around it, standing firm against the the waves of eternity, right? We have something on earth called a fortress, and we say, you know, when you think of what a fortress is, God is like that. He's a protector. He keeps out the bad guys, And he is a mighty strong fortress. He is an impenetrable strong fortress. Our fortresses all fail. God never fails in his fortressing. But we have used an image that is something here on earth to picture God. Fathers are not like that. We don't know God as father because we have a dad. We have a father because God was a father. He built it into humans, not the other way around. So Adam didn't learn what it was to be a father when he had Abel and Cain and Seth and his other children. Adam already knew what fatherhood was. This is explicitly stated at the end of Luke chapter 3 where it gives the genealogy of Adam, or genealogy of Jesus, You know, Jesus, back, 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 back. So-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. And was the father of, and was the father of, and was the father of. And was the father of, and was the son of, Seth. And was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. That before Eve ever got pregnant... On the day in which Adam was created, there was already a father. And it was God the Father. And fatherhood had existed in eternity, beyond all eternities, as Father, Son. And so we don't figure out what God is like by looking and finding examples on the earth of God's fatherhood. All that we do is go, that's an accurate representation of eternity. Or that's a bad representation of eternity. That our reference point is not here, it's there. And that really changes everything. It really changes everything. Because oftentimes the way we think about God comes from our own relationships. Good or bad. And so if we had a good father, we have good thoughts about God being a father. If we had a bad father, we have bad thoughts about what fatherhood is. Either way we go... That gets us in trouble. Because we will assume the things we liked about our own dad are the most important things about God. That might be true. It might be false. Or if we had a bad father, we'll assume that all these bad things also exist in small quantities in God the father of all things. And that's absolutely false. God is eternally the father from whom all fatherhood is named. In fact, that is part of... The message of the gospel. This is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. I'm going to read a little bit back and then I'm going to end with this fatherhood concept in Ephesians. This is Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 7. Of this gospel, so the gospel being the salvation that's found through Jesus Christ, I was made a minister. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, so for all of that, for the unsearchable riches of the mystery of the gospel, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father from whom every fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named. That the gospel itself depends and rests upon the fatherhood of God. That everything we know is about this. In fact, our whole relationship to God is given in terms of this. Adoption. Adoption as what? Sons and daughters of God. In love, this is Ephesians chapter 1. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. That the whole point of Christ is to get us to the Father, right? Romans chapter 7 or 8. And by this, by his Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. That's, that's what we get. We get access to the Father of all lights through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed To call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. That sonship and fatherhood are eternal. And they are absolutely fundamental to the truth of the gospel and therefore they are fundamental to the faith of all of us that we understand who God is as a father so practically what does that do for us so we we now know it's true i hope you're convinced that this is absolutely true that this is a fundamental reality of god and we are made in his image right we bear this same sort of thing if god is love we're supposed to love if God is wise, we're supposed to be wise. If God is a father, we are supposed to be as fathers and mothers. So we have something called the Ten Commandments. Does anyone know what commandment might be related to this idea? Honor your father and mother. This is true. If I can get to Exodus, we'll be fine. Just keep turning pages. So the first four commandments are Godward. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Don't use my name in vain. Honor the Sabbath. The last six commandments are peopleward, right? The first of those, Before thou shalt not murder. Before thou shalt not commit adultery, before you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, or you shall not covet, is this, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. It's, even though we categorically state the first four belong over here and the last six are here, that fifth commandment is a pivot point. Because honoring your father and mother is really just an outlying of the first four commandments of honoring God. Because we honor our father and mother not because they're good or bad, but because they bear the image of God of fatherhood. They are in fact fathers and mothers to us because God made them that. Not because they did something in and of themselves. They owe they are owed our allegiance and our honor because of who God made them in their office as father and mother. And it's because they're made in the image of God. You all have people who have acted as fathers and mothers to you. your biological father and mother, hopefully, but even if not, other people a boss, a teacher, a principal, a Sunday school teacher, a pastor. Somebody, somewhere, a friend, right? I'm thinking of like when you all were out in D.C., and this friend you'd known your whole life introduces you to the gospel. That's a, that's a mother and a father to you, even though you're, they were your peers, right? They were the same age. <laughs> we all have these relationships that are actually fathers and mothers to us. Some of them, by virtue of what they did for us spiritually... Some of them by virtue of who they are to us, our boss at work, our teacher at school, our principal, our pastor, whatever it is. So that whenever we see the image of God in fatherhood, in eldership, in leadership, in authority, that that is in fact an image of God. And it's why we have such stern warnings about something in the commandments given to the Old old Covenant. I'm just going to read one of them and then give another example of it. Leviticus 20, verse 9, Whoever curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. His blood is upon him. And you could find at least ten or so places in the old law where dishonoring the father or the mother was punishable by death. We think, boy, that's a little bit of an overreaction, right? It seems, seems a bit harsh. And there's what we would call today case law. There's the idea of trying to see how bad was the offense given against the father or the mother what kind of punishment does it deserve? It doesn't mean every time a son disobeyed his father, they took him outside the camp and stoned him. Um, you know, if that happened, there would be no Jews because every, everybody has dishonored their father and mother. But what it shows is how unbelievably important that honor is to your father and mother. It ends with the exact same sort of phrase that we saw with murder. Right. So murder, if anyone sheds the blood of a man, his blood shall be shed, for his blood is upon him. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall surely be, be put to death. His blood is upon him. Why? Why does God take honoring father and mother so seriously? Because it's a strike at the very image of who he has been for all eternity. It is one of the most severest sins because it strikes at the core of who God is and who we are as image bearers. To dishonor our father and mother is to spit in the face of God the Father. It is an absolute atrocious wickedness. And here I stand, a 38 year old man who has done quite a bit of spitting in my life. Right? Don't Ask too many questions to my parents today. We are all in grave danger of this. Not just of our biological parents. But God in his word applies this idea of honoring the father and mother. The image of God in man. The fatherhood of God. To all kinds of places. I've mentioned them fleetingly. right? Pastors, teachers, principals, bosses. When Saul, the first king of Israel, has disobeyed God and has made his sacrifices that he wasn't supposed to make, he was supposed to wait for Samuel, he is told after the fact that rebellion, which is dishonoring of authority, that's what rebellion is, dishonoring authority. It's raging against authority. It's saying to whoever is in charge, I don't care that you're in charge, I'm not going to do what you tell me. Right? Right? So Samuel was in charge. Even though Saul was king, Samuel was God's spokesman, his prophet, and Samuel had told Saul, I will come, I will make the sacrifices. And Saul said, it's been long enough, I'm going to make the sacrifices. So Samuel comes and he says this, Rebellion is the same as the sin of divination. 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 We all have this instant distaste to something like divination. This idea of like we're gonna we're gonna commune with the spirits. We're gonna call upon God in a way that He is not prescribed. We're gonna call up the spirits of the dead. We're going to commune with those in the spirit realm. Right? It's all gross. And Samuel says rebellion is the exact same thing. Rebellion is the same exact sort of sin as divination. He's equating it with his horrible wickedness of going against God, trying to find false gods. He says rebellion is the same thing. Because what you do in rebellion is you say to God, who has put authority in place, you did wrongly here. The authority that's here was a bad choice. So I'm not going to honor it. And it's a direct rebellion against not the authority here, But against God the Father, from whom all fatherhood gets its name. So every time we rebel, it's as divination. Every time we rebel, it's as a son striking out against his father or mother and is deserving of death, and our blood is upon us. And it's a sin that is deep in our bones. It's deep in our bones. Adam and Eve in the garden. God the Father gives a rule to his son and daughter. They disobey. They rebel. And on and on it goes through the centuries and eternities. We are rebels. We are rebels. And it comes out in very practical ways, right? So, your boss has given you a task to do. You do it, but you drag your feet. You go slowly. Or how about this one? A little closer to home, a little harder to swallow. Put on a mask. Spread out. Don't gather. There are very few of us who went, I've got no problems at all with that, even if we did it happily in the end the immediate reaction of our hearts was, you don't, you don't get to decide what I do. You don't, get, you don't get to tell me what I ought to do and not do. I'm my own man. I do what I want to do. Now, this is, this is what I thought, anyway. And it doesn't mean you, you don't have the right and the freedom to disagree with your authority. In fact... Um, many people throughout the ages have said the spirit of submission is only to be found when you disagree with the one telling you to do something. That you only begin to understand what submission is when you disagree with it. That if you agree with what you've been told to do, there's no problem there. It's really an easy thing to submit when you agree with the one who told you what to do. It's when you disagree that you have to fight against your flesh, And submit to it. And we see this most easily in children. Right? So, I don't know who coined the phrase. I don't know if it was around longer than our parentage. But a lot of folks our age use a a little, I don't know what it even is called. A little chant sort of thing. Do obey right away the very first time with a happy heart. Now, that's a good thing to say to your kids and to other people. But it's an impossible thing. Because you can't make someone have a happy heart. You can't just be like, hey, make your heart happy. Just do it. Just be happy. They don't want to do it. You've told them to clean their room. They don't want to do it. They have to learn to submit to your will. Do something they don't want to do. And then be happy. That's a hard thing to learn, isn't it? Have you learned it? (laughs) Have I learned it? Now... There's all kinds of responses we can have to this. And there are times to say to those in authority, we're not going here, we're not doing this. Happens in Scripture. Um, but we have to be very careful that we don't decide to do that presumptively. Presumptively without just cause, without biblical reason. And that doesn't mean you have to do every single thing all the time that you've been commanded, or otherwise you're in great sin and danger of hell. Except that it does mean that. We play very lightly with these things. And so we we talk about circumstances that could never happen. So... Um, I remember this very, very, very clearly. Uh, So seatbelt laws came into being when I was, I don't know, 10, 12, 13, something like that. It was before I started driving, where they required seatbelts to be worn by... At first, it was the people in the front seats, and then it moved to the people in the rear seats. And then trucks were exempt for a long time, and so I bought a pickup truck when I was in college, so I didn't have to wear a seatbelt. And a year later, the seatbelt law extended to pickup trucks. Why did I... Want that pickup truck? Well, I can tell you exactly why. I remember this so vividly. When the first seatbelt laws came into being, I was, you know, 10, 12. um, I remember a discussion that was had at the Sunday dinner table at my family's, at my grandma's. And I remember one of my uncles went on a tirade about the autonomy, the freedom, the choice to say, I will not wear a seatbelt. I remember very vividly. And even though that uncle and I didn't really get along, I liked what he said. So I bought a pickup truck. So I didn't have to obey the seatbelt law. I did it thinking about that law. I didn't do it, oh, I guess I don't have to wear a seatbelt. It was, my next vehicle after I wreck this one is going to be a truck because I don't have to wear a seatbelt anymore. I literally thought this. And it all came back from you know, 10 or 12 years earlier when I'd heard my uncle talk about the freedom to do what he wants to do. Rebellion is just so deep in us. We do it all the time. We don't like anyone telling us to do things. And yet, yet, intrinsic to Christianity is the fatherhood of God who has given us many things to do. And many of them we don't like to do. If you talk to Daryl very long, he will bring up this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. I'm pretty sure he reads it about twice a week. It's very annoying. Why is it very annoying? Because the Sermon on the Mount is extremely painful to read. Because it's just a whole bunch of, your heart's bad. Your heart's really bad. Your heart is bad. Do you know how we know your heart is bad? Because of this, 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 and this. Some of the things that Jesus says in the New Testament that we just kind of pass over and go by. If anyone demands a cloak from you, give it to him and offer your shirt too. Um, I don't know about that one because uh, I'm kind of attached to my clothing and my stuff. And if someone's just kind of... Demanding of me, I'm not inclined to give it to them because hey, ask nicely, right? Don't be demanding. If you if you ask nicely, I'd maybe give you my coat. But she says if if a man demands it, that's unpleasant. And yet it's practical. Um, this guy never, to my knowledge, ever became a Christian. But there was a guy who I was in Yellowstone, I spent a summer in Yellowstone, and uh, one of the guys I worked with was a Jew. Um, and he was always needling things. He had taken, he, he had went to a Jewish college, and he would taken an anti-Christian apologetics course. I don't know what the title of it was, but basically they studied the New Testament to refute Christians. Like, well, that's, all right. So me, being a significantly less desirable sort of man than I am now, uh, took this as a personal challenge and decided that I would have many discussions with this guy. And so he would all the time just be walking up to me and saying crazy stuff. And so one of the, one of the times, literally, this happened. He came up to me and goes, hey, give me $20. And I was like, oh, okay. And I had just read the portion of Scripture where it says, if anyone demands anything from you, you should give it without, without asking or something. It's literally something very stark and stern. Like if someone asks you something and you have it, give it to them. And so I was like, okay. And then he goes, and and your shirt, give me your shirt. And I was like, and I literally just read this passage, and I was like, okay. So I literally took off my shirt. I'm not an attractive man. So now I'm walking shirtless through the middle of Yellowstone National Park because some Jew had decided that he had read the Bible and knew what it meant. Now, I don't say that to say that, like, I'm some godly guy. I just say we don't, we don't. Take these commands seriously ever we we always find exceptions to our father 's rules we 're like the kid who finds a way to weasel out how to disobey by just parsing his words exactly right This is what we all do with god 's word well in this circumstance it 's not really this is different it 's different because um uh, And then we just have to think of like 20 reasons why it could possibly be not applicable in this situation. Um, John Piper said once, because people will do this, right? I do this. People will do this. I do this. Walking along the street, Indianapolis, downtown, Chicago, Minneapolis, wherever, people begging on the street. You walk past them. They say, hey, can you spare some change or whatever they say. And you have some. Now, me, these days, I don't carry any cash, so I'm off the hook. It's okay. But many, many times you walk past them and you just think, what do you think? They're just going to spend it on booze, drugs. They're not going to use that money faithfully. I could do much more good with that money myself. You know, I could invest that money in the stock market at seven percent. I'd have a couple hundred dollars in a couple years. I could invest that in somebody. Uh, da, da da da. And we just have this huge framework for how we could better use God's money, right? And so we don't give. And John Piper responding to that thought because it's in, we all have it, right? We've all walked past. We've all justified why we didn't give. And, she, and John Piper says, I don't think you're ever going to get to heaven and God is going to go, I can't believe you were so generous that you would give it to people all the time. Why didn't you withhold it a few times? He's like, I don't think God is ever going to say to you, you should have been less generous in your life. Now, I read that, heard that 15 years ago. And it just stopped me in my tracks because it's not just about that guy on the street asking for money and whether or not you give. That's how we look at everything God has told us to do. God has told us to be generous and we think of a thousand reasons why we shouldn't be generous. God has told us to do this and we think of a thousand reasons why we shouldn't do that. God has told us to do that with a thousand reasons why we shouldn't do that. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. Honor your father and mother. God is our Father. God is our Father. He knows what is good for us. He's better at it than us. He invented it. It's Him. It's just who He is. He didn't accidentally tell us to do this or that. He didn't mean for us to mistake it for something else. He spoke clearly. And He spoke with love. So what do we do? How are we supposed to get beyond this? Because we have a major problem if this is true. A major problem if this is true. We are all rebels. Our only hope, our only hope is in Christ. The good Son. The only Son. The begotten, not made one. Eternally the Son. Forever the Son who came. And every, it says, every jot and tittle of the law, he obeyed. Not a single bit of it was left undone. Which means there was someone at some point demanding ridiculous things out of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he willingly, happily complied. That we don't think of how difficult it would have been for the Son of God, who is eternal and wise, to be raised by Mary and Joseph. Who are not eternal and wise. And who probably had ridiculous rules, just as all parents have. Who probably reprimanded and spanked Jesus for things he did not do. But his brother James did. Right? Think of this. This is reality. Jesus always honored his father and mother. Without exception... Without breaking ever that commandment. To the point of, on the cross, as he is dying, he turns to John and says, Behold your mother, behold your son. That he cared for his earthly mother Mary until his dying breath. He honored his mother and his father. We have one who has done it for us, which is good news. If we trust in him, we have that righteousness that he acquired that we could not. But then he gives us this unbelievable gift, the third person of the Trinity, the spirit of God who dwells within us and gives us the ability to actually obey our heavenly father with happy hearts. With happy hearts. Not all the time perfectly as the son of God did, but much of the time. And so when you read the scriptures this week, Maybe read John 17 in the prayer that he gives, which contains his purposes for us, his commands in a way to us. Read them and be happy about them. They're for you. You're good. They're good. He's good. He is our perfect father. And we need him. We need him. We have hope because of him. And we have hope because of his son. And... I hope, I hope that as we're convicted of these things that we do against striking at the fatherhood of God, that we will remember that we are in need of saving and that we will trust in the Son of God to save us. Amen? We're going to close this morning. Rick is going to lead us um, in our song, but I'd ask you to stay excuse me, as I pray this morning.